And now, part two of Justice Stevens, 2008, Dissenting Opinion in District of Columbia v. Heller. Part three. Although it gives short shrift to the drafting history of the Second Amendment, the court dwells at length on four other sources the 17th century English Bill of Rights, Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, post enactment commentary on the Second Amendment, and post Civil War legislative history. All of these sources shed only indirect light on the question before us and, in any event, offer little support for the court's conclusion. The English Bill of Rights The court's reliance on Article 7 of the 1689 English Bill of Rights, which, like most of the evidence offered by the court today, was considered in Miller, is misguided both because Article 7 was enacted in response to different concerns from those that motivated the framers of the Second Amendment, and because the guarantees of the two provisions were by no means co-extensive. Moreover, the English text contained no preamble or other provision identifying a narrow, militia-related purpose. The English Bill of Rights responded to abuses by the Stuart monarchs. Among the grievances set forth in the Bill of Rights was that the king had violated the law by causing several good subjects, being Protestants, to be disarmed at the same time when papists were both armed and employed contrary to law. Article 7 of the Bill of Rights was a response to that selective disarmament. It guaranteed that the subjects, which are Protestants, may have arms for their defense, suitable to their condition and as allowed by law. This grant did not establish a general right of all persons, or even of all Protestants, to possess weapons. Rather, the right was qualified in two distinct ways. First, it was restricted to those of adequate social and economic status, suitable to their condition. Second, it was only available subject to regulation by Parliament, as allowed by law. The court may well be correct that the English Bill of Rights protected the right of some English subjects to use some arms for personal self-defense, free from restrictions by the Crown, but not Parliament. But that right, adopted in a different historical and political context, and framed in markedly different language, tells us little about the meaning of the Second Amendment. Blackstone's Commentaries The Court's reliance on Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England 
is unpersuasive for the same reason as its reliance on the English Bill of Rights. Blackstone's invocation of the natural right of resistance and self-preservation and the right of having and using arms for self-preservation and defense referred specifically to Article 7 in the English Bill of Rights. The excerpt from Blackstone offered by the court, therefore is, like Article 7 itself, of limited use in interpreting the very differently worded and differently historically situated Second Amendment. What is important about Blackstone is the instruction he provided on reading the sort of text before us today. Blackstone described an interpretive approach that gave far more weight to preambles than the court allows. Counseling that the fairest and most rational method to interpret the will of the legislator is by exploring his intentions at the time when the law was made, by signs the most natural and probable. Blackstone explained that if words happen to still be dubious, we may establish their meaning from the context with which it may be of singular use to compare a word or a sentence whenever they are ambiguous, equivocal, or intricate. Thus, the proem, or preamble, is often called in to help the construction of an act of parliament. In light of the court's invocation of Blackstone, as the preeminent authority on English law for the founding generation, its disregard for his guidance on matters of interpretation is striking. Post-enactment commentary The court also excerpts, without any real analysis, commentary by a number of additional scholars, some near in time to the framing, and others postdating it by close to a century. Those scholars are, for the most part, of limited relevance in construing the guarantee of the Second Amendment. Their views are not altogether clear. They tended to collapse the Second Amendment with Article 7 of the English Bill of Rights, and they appear to have been unfamiliar with the drafting history of the Second Amendment. The most significant of these commentators was Joseph Story. Contrary to the court's assertions, however, Story actually supports the view that the amendment was designed to protect the right of each of the states to maintain a well-regulated militia. When Story used the term palladium in discussions of the Second Amendment, he merely echoed the concerns that animated the framers of the amendment and led to its adoption. An excerpt from his 1833 commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, the same passage cited by the court in Miller, merits reproducing at some length. The importance of the Second Amendment will scarcely be doubted by any persons who have duly reflected upon the subject. The militia is the natural defense of a free country 
against sudden foreign invasions, domestic insurrections, and domestic usurpations of power by rulers. It is against sound policy for a free people to keep up large military establishments and standing armies in time of peace, both from the enormous expenses with which they are attended and the facile means which they afford to ambitious and unprincipled rulers to subvert the government or trample upon the rights of the people. The right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered as the palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpation and arbitrary power of rulers, and will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. And yet, though this truth would seem so clear, and the importance of a well-regulated militia would seem so undeniable, it cannot be disguised that among the American people there is a growing indifference to any system of militia discipline and a strong disposition from a sense of its burdens to be rid of all regulations how it is practicable to keep the people duly armed without some organization it is difficult to see there is certainly no small danger that indifference may lead to disgust and disgust to contempt and thus gradually undermine all the protection intended by the clause of our National Bill of Rights. Story thus began by tying the significance of the amendment directly to the paramount importance of the militia. He then invoked the fear that drove the framers of the Second Amendment, specifically the threat to liberty posed by a standing army. An important check on that danger, he suggested, was a well-regulated militia, for which he assumed that arms would have to be kept, and, when necessary, born. There is not so much as a whisper in the passage above that Story believed that the right secured by the amendment bore any relation to private use or possession of weapons for activities like hunting or personal self-defense. After extolling the virtues of the militia as a bulwark against tyranny, Story went on to decry the growing indifference to any system of militia discipline when he wrote how it is practicable to keep the people duly armed without some organization it is difficult to see. He underscored the degree to which he viewed the arming of the people and the militia as indissolubly linked. Story warned that the growing indifference he perceived would gradually undermine all the protection intended by this clause of our National Bill of Rights. In his view, the importance of the amendment was directly related to the continuing vitality of an institution in the process of apparently becoming obsolete. 
in an attempt to downplay the absence of any reference to non-military uses of weapons in Story's commentary. The court relies on the fact that Story characterized Article 7 of the English Declaration of Rights as a similar provision. The two provisions were indeed similar in that they both protected some uses of firearms. But Story's characterization in no way suggests that he believed that the provisions had the same scope. To the contrary, Story's exclusive focus on the militia in his discussion of the Second Amendment confirms his understanding of the right protected by the Second Amendment as limited to military uses of arms. Story's writings as a justice of this court, to the extent that they shed light on this question, only confirm that Justice Story did not view the amendment as conferring upon individuals any self-defense right disconnected from service in a state militia. Justice Story dissented from the court's decision in Houston v. Moore, 1820, which held that a state court had concurrent jurisdiction with the federal courts to try a militiaman who had disobeyed the call of the president and to enforce the laws of Congress against such delinquents. Justice Story believed that Congress's power to provide for the organizing, arming, and disciplining of the militia was, when Congress acted, plenary, but he explained that in the absence of congressional action, I am certainly not prepared to deny the legitimacy of such an exercise of state authority. As to the Second Amendment, he wrote that it may not perhaps be thought to have any important bearing on this point. If it have, it confirms and illustrates rather than impugns the reasoning already suggested. The court contends that had Justice Story understood the amendment to have a militia purpose, the amendment would have had enormous and obvious bearing on the point. But the court has it quite backwards. If Story had believed that the purpose of the amendment was to permit civilians to keep firearms for activities like personal self-defense, what confirmation and illustration could the amendment possibly have provided for the point that states retained the power to organize, arm, and discipline their own militias? Post-Civil War Legislative History the court suggests that, by the post-Civil War period, the Second Amendment was understood to secure a right to firearm use and ownership for purely private purposes like personal self-defense. While it is true that some of the legislative history on which the court relies supports that contention, such sources are entitled to limited, if any, weight. All of the statements the court cites were made long after the framing of the amendment and cannot possibly supply any insight into the intent of the framers, and all were made during pitched political debates, so that they are better characterized as advocacy than good-faith attempts at constitutional interpretation. What is more, 
Much of the evidence the court offers is decidedly less clear than its discussion allows. The court notes that blacks were routinely disarmed by southern states after the Civil War. Those who opposed these injustices frequently stated that they infringed blacks' constitutional right to keep and bear arms. The court hastily concludes that, needless to say, the claim was not that blacks were being prohibited from carrying arms in an organized state militia. But some of the claims of the sort the court cites may have been just that. In some southern states, Reconstruction-era Republican governments created state militias in which both blacks and whites were permitted to serve. Because the decision to allow blacks to serve alongside whites meant that most Southerners refused to join the new militia, the bodies were dubbed Negro militias. The arming of the Negro militias met with especially fierce resistance in South Carolina. The sight of organized, armed freedmen incensed opponents of Reconstruction and led to an intensified campaign of Klan terror. Leading members of the Negro militia were beaten or lynched and their weapons stolen. One particularly chilling account of Reconstruction-era Klan violence directed at a black militia member is recounted in the memoir of Lewis F. Post. Post describes the murder by local Klan members of Jim Williams, the captain of a Negro militia company, this way. A cavalcade of 60 cowardly white men, completely disguised with face masks and body gowns, rode up one night in March, 1871, to the house of Captain Williams. In the wood they hanged him and shot him, and on his body then pinned a slip of paper inscribed, as I remember it, with these grim words. Jim Williams, gone to his last muster. In light of this evidence, it is quite possible that at least some of the statements on which the court relies actually did mean to refer to the disarmament of black militia members. Part 4 The brilliance of the debates that resulted in the Second Amendment faded into oblivion during the ensuing years, for the concerns about Article 1's militia clauses that generated such pitched debate during the ratification process and led to the adoption of the Second Amendment were short-lived. In 1792, the year after the amendment was ratified, Congress passed a statute that purported to establish a uniform militia throughout the United States. The statute commanded every able-bodied white male citizen between the ages of 18 and 45 to be enrolled therein and to provide himself with a good musket or firelock and other specified weaponry. The statute is significant for it confirmed the way those in the founding generation viewed firearm ownership as a duty linked to military service. The statute they enacted, however, was virtually ignored 
for more than a century and was finally repealed in 1901. The post-ratification history of the Second Amendment is strikingly similar. The amendment played little role in any legislative debate about the civilian use of firearms for most of the 19th century, and it made few appearances in the decisions of this court. Two 19th century cases, however, bear mentioning. In United States v. Cruikshank, 1876, the court sustained a challenge to respondents' convictions under the Enforcement Act of 1870 for conspiring to deprive any individual of any right or privilege granted or secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. The court wrote, as to counts 2 and 10 of respondents' indictment. The right there specified is that of bearing arms for a lawful purpose. This is not a right granted by the Constitution. Neither is it in any manner dependent on that instrument for its existence. The Second Amendment declares that it shall not be infringed. But this, as has been seen, means no more than it shall not be infringed by Congress. This is one of the amendments that has no other effect than to restrict the powers of the national government. The majority's assertion that the court in Cruikshank described the right protected by the Second Amendment as bearing arms for a lawful purpose is not accurate. The Cruikshank court explained that the defective indictment contained such language, but the court did not itself describe the right or endorse the indictment's description of the right. Moreover, it is entirely possible that the basis for the indictments counts 2 and 10, which charged respondents with depriving the victims of rights secured by the Second Amendment, was the prosecutor's belief that the victims— members of a group of citizens, mostly black but also white, who were rounded up by the sheriff, sworn in as a posse to defend the local courthouse, and attacked by a white mob, bore sufficient resemblance to members of a state militia that they were brought within the reach of the Second Amendment. Only one other 19th century case in this court Presser v. Illinois, 1886, engaged in any significant discussion of the Second Amendment. The petitioner in Presser was convicted of violating a state statute that prohibited organizations other than the Illinois National Guard from associating together as military companies or parading with arms. Presser challenged his conviction, asserting, as relevant, that the statute violated both the Second and the Fourteenth Amendments. With respect to the Second Amendment, the court wrote, We think it clear that the sections under consideration, which only forbid bodies of men to associate together as military organizations, or to drill or parade with arms in cities and towns, unless authorized by law, do not infringe the right of the people to keep and bear arms. But a conclusive answer to the contention that this amendment prohibits the legislation in question lies in the fact that the amendment is a limitation only 
upon the power of Congress and the national government, and not upon that of the states. And in discussing the 14th Amendment, the court explained, The plaintiff in error was not a member of the organized volunteer militia of the state of Illinois, nor did he belong to the troops of the United States or to any organization under the militia law of the United States. On the contrary, the fact that he did not belong to the organized militia or the troops of the United States was an ingredient in the offense for which he was convicted and sentenced. The question is, therefore, had he a right as a citizen of the United States, in disobedience of the state law, to associate with others as a military company and to drill and parade with arms in the towns and cities of the state. If the plaintiff in error has any such privilege, he must be able to point to the provision of the Constitution or statutes of the United States by which it is conferred. Presser, therefore, both affirmed Cruikshank's holding that the Second Amendment posed no obstacle to regulation by state governments, and suggested that in any event nothing in the Constitution protected the use of arms outside the context of a militia authorized by law and organized by the state or federal government. In 1901, the President revitalized the militia by creating the National Guard of the several states. Meanwhile, the dominant understanding of the Second Amendment's inapplicability to private gun ownership continued well into the 20th century. The first two federal laws directly restricting civilian use and possession of firearms, the 1927 Act prohibiting mail delivery of pistols, revolvers, and other firearms capable of being concealed on the person, and the 1934 Act prohibiting the possession of sawed-off shotguns and machine guns were enacted over minor Second Amendment objections dismissed by the vast majority of the legislators who participated in the debates. Congress clashed over the wisdom and efficacy of such laws as crime control measures, but since the statutes did not infringe upon the military use or possession of weapons, for most legislators they did not even raise the specter of possible conflict with the Second Amendment. Thus, for most of our history, the invalidity of Second Amendment-based objections to firearms regulations has been well settled and uncontroversial. Indeed, the Second Amendment was not even mentioned in either full House of Congress during the legislative proceedings that led to the passage of the 1934 Act. Yet, enforcement of that law produced the judicial decision that confirmed the status of the amendment as limited in reach to military usage, after reviewing many of the same sources that are discussed at greater length by the court today, the Miller Court unanimously concluded that the Second Amendment did not apply to possession of a firearm that did not have some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia.
the key to that decision did not, as the court belatedly suggests, turn on the difference between muskets and sawed-off shotguns. It turned, rather, on the basic difference between the military and non-military use and possession of guns. Indeed, if the Second Amendment were not limited in its coverage to military uses of weapons, why should the court in Miller have suggested that some weapons, but not others, were eligible for Second Amendment protection? If use for self-defense were the relevant standard, why did the court not inquire into the suitability of a particular weapon for self-defense purposes? Perhaps in recognition of the weakness of its attempt to distinguish Miller, the court argues in the alternative that Miller should be discounted because of its decisional history. It is true that the appellee in Miller did not file a brief or make an appearance, although the court below had held that the relevant provision of the National Firearms Act violated the Second Amendment. But as our decision in Marbury v. Madison, in which only one side appeared and presented arguments, demonstrates, the absence of of adversarial presentation alone is not a basis for refusing to accord stare decisis effect to a decision of this court. Of course, if it can be demonstrated that new evidence or arguments were genuinely not available to an earlier court, that fact should be given special weight as we consider whether to overrule a prior case. But the court does not make that claim, because it cannot. Although it is true that the drafting history of the amendment was not discussed in the government's brief, it is certainly not the drafting history that the court's decision today turns on. And those sources upon which the court today relies most heavily were available to the Miller court. The government cited the English Bill of Rights and quoted a lengthy passage detailing the history leading to the English guarantee. It also cited Blackstone. The court is reduced to critiquing the number of pages the government devoted to exploring the English legal sources, only two, in a brief 21 pages in length. Would the court be satisfied with four? Ten? The court is simply wrong when it intones that Miller contained not a word about the amendment's history. The court plainly looked to history to construe the term militia, and on the best reading of Miller, the entire guarantee of the Second Amendment— after noting the original Constitution's grant of power to Congress and to the states over the militia, the court explained, with obvious purpose to assure the continuation and render possible the effectiveness of such forces, the declaration and guarantee of the Second Amendment were made. It must be interpreted and applied with that end in view. The militia, which the states were expected to maintain and train, 
is set in contrast with troops, which they were forbidden to keep without the consent of Congress. The sentiment of the time strongly disfavored standing armies. The common view was that adequate defense of country and laws could be secured through the militia, civilians primarily, soldiers on occasion. The signification attributed to the term militia appears from the debates in the Convention, the history and legislation of colonies and states, and the writings of approved commentators. The majority cannot seriously believe that the Miller Court did not consider any relevant evidence. The majority simply does not approve of the conclusion the Miller Court reached on that evidence. Standing alone, that is insufficient reason to disregard a unanimous opinion of this court, upon which substantial reliance has been placed by legislators and citizens for nearly 70 years. Part 5. The court concludes its opinion by declaring that it is not the proper role of this court to change the meaning of rights enshrined in the Constitution. But the right the court announces was not enshrined in the Second Amendment by the framers. It is the product of today's law-changing decision. The majority's exegesis has utterly failed to establish that as a matter of text or history, the right of law-abiding responsible citizens to use arms in defense of the hearth and home is elevated above all other interests by the Second Amendment. Until today, it has been understood that the legislatures may regulate the civilian use and misuse of firearms so long as they do not interfere with the preservation of a well-regulated militia. The court's announcement of a new constitutional right to own and use firearms for private purposes upsets that settled understanding but leaves for future cases but leaves for future cases the formidable task of defining the scope of permissible regulations. Today, judicial craftsmen have confidently asserted that a policy choice that denies a law-abiding, responsible citizen the right to keep and use weapons in the home for self-defense is off the table. Given the presumption that most citizens are law-abiding and the reality that the need to defend oneself may suddenly arise in a host of locations outside the home, I fear that the district's policy choice may well be just the first of an unknown number of dominoes to be knocked off the table. I do not know whether today's decision will increase the labor of federal judges to the breaking point envisioned by Justice Cardozo but it will surely give rise to a far more active judicial role in making vitally important national policy decisions than was envisioned at any time in the 18th, 19th, or 20th century. 
the court properly disclaims any interest in evaluating the wisdom of the specific policy choice challenged in this case, but it fails to pay heed to a far more important policy choice, the choice made by the framers themselves. The court would have us believe that over 200 years ago, the framers made a choice to limit the tools available to elected officials wishing to regulate civilian uses of weapons and to authorize this court to use the common law process of case-by-case judicial lawmaking to define the contours of acceptable gun control policy. Absent compelling evidence that is nowhere to be found in the court's opinion, I could not possibly conclude that the framers made such a choice. For these reasons, I respectfully dissent. We've reached the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.